0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from this series, Seven. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today.
1: Bobby Bell in the room. Bobby Bell, coming up, brother. Bobby Bell, everybody. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word?
0: Revelation 3, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the holy city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: May God bless the hearing of his word. Father, we come before you this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us in the proclamation of your word, that our hearts might be turned to you this morning. that You might change us, Lord and strengthen us as your people to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. morning. We are uh, in the first of the penultimate teaching in the Revelation series. We have one more church after today to go through. I have the privilege of of, uh, walking us through Philadelphia. I do not have an introduction this morning because I have far too many notes. So I'm just going to give us the theme for this morning and then go through the historical context For the Church of Philadelphia. The theme for this morning, Jesus sees the patient perseverance of the church through all kinds of trials. He keeps them through it and he's bringing a reward to them very quickly. Point number one, Jesus is going to speak to his church in Philadelphia. What is this church in Philadelphia? Uh, A couple notes here, but first let's read the text. To the angel, the church in Philadelphia, speak these things. The one who is holy, the one who is true, the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one closes, and what he closes, no one opens. Jesus is speaking to the church. The church here in Philadelphia, uh, modern day it's called Alessar, the the remains of the actual Philadelphia are still there. You can go and see Alessar. Uh, I'm saying it incorrectly, but it's Alasair or something. It's an inland, it's about 30 miles south of Sardis. It's inland, it's it's in the conjunction of rivers and mountains, sort of in the middle of Turkey. That plays into some of what we're going to talk about here. It's the youngest of the seven churches. It was established right about 200 B.C. by the king of Pergamum. Let's see, what else do I want to talk about here? Obviously, the name Philadelphia we know because we understand that that our own Philadelphia in Pennsylvania means the city of brotherly love. Um, the Greek here can be a little bit misleading if we apply sort of bad hermeneutics. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, doesn't really play into the meaning of the understanding of this text. So as you're walking through, you might be tempted. Uh, in our Americanization, the way that we understand English and the translation, to say Philadelphia, well, this is going to be about a church that's, that's just loving their brothers really well. Well, that's probably true. In fact, I would say that is true. They are loving each other well. But that's not why Jesus is talking to them, and that's not primarily what Jesus is talking about. Why they call Philadelphia, just a brief bit of history here. The king of Pergamum, Eumenes, who established this city, was attacked by Rome. Rome wanted Pergamum. They went to his younger brother, who was called Attalus. Attalus would not be turned by Rome. So, Attalus was then called Attalus Philadelpho. Attalus, the one who loved his brother so much so, that he didn't give him up. Therefore, the city was then named after Philadelphia. There were two other times that the city was given new names. The city, like I said, is at the convergence of rivers and mountains. As a result, it's in an earthquake zone. There was an earthquake in AD 17, which Completely displaced all the residents of Philadelphia. They all had to leave the city. In that time, Tiberius was emperor. He excused them from having to pay tribute to Rome. He sent financial aid, essentially, you know, a FEMA or whatever the Roman FEMA would be, to Philadelphia to help them rebuild. In gratitude to what Tiberius had done, they put a statue of Tiberius up in their city and they also renamed the city Neo Caesarea, the new city of our Caesar. Later on, when Vespasian was Emperor, they named the city Flavia after him. So here's a city that's been named for three different people. okay? That's important. Jesus talks to them about this. Let's see um. Okay, I already talked about that. I'm sorry, I do have way too many notes here. So we're going to move on here. Uh, Finally to that, okay. So then Jesus talks to the city, and who is Jesus? How does he introduce himself? Jesus says, I am the one, the holy one, the true one, the one who holds the key of David, the one who opens doors and no one closes them, the one who closes doors and no one opens them. Who is Jesus revealing himself as here? There's a couple things that we want to take note of. Number one... Jesus is the one who is holy, the holy one. The NIV translates this in a way that's a little bit chunky. The way this should really read is the holy one, the true one, the one who holds the key. And the reason that it should be translated that way is because what Isaiah is making reference back to is the Old Testament understanding of Yahweh as the holy one. When we look at Isaiah 49, specifically verse 23, God says to them, who are you going to compare me to? I am the holy one. When Jesus uses this this language in Revelation, what he's saying here is, I am God. He then says, I am the true one. And what he means by this is, I can be counted on as the true Messiah, the one that God has appointed. It's not just I'm claiming to be God, but I'm also a man. And a man can't be God, but I'm telling you, I'm the holy one, I'm God, and I am true. I am the one that God has appointed. I am sovereign. I have the right to be speaking here. And again, Jesus has introduced himself to the seven churches, the five churches previous to Philadelphia, and every time he does so, he's going back and establishing his right to speak to them. And so he says to them, number one, I am the sovereign one who has the right to speak to you. Number two, he says to them, I am the sovereign judge. He says, I hold the key of David. What John is referencing back to here is Isaiah 22. And Isaiah 22, specifically verses 22 through 25, play a big, they're a huge backdrop to what, John's, uh, to what Jesus is talking to the church of Philadelphia about through John. I'm not gonna read the, t- the passage, but I'll tell you what was going on there. There was a steward in Israel, his name was Shibna. Shibna has decided because he thought he was great that he would build himself a tomb in the city of the tombs of the kings. He's not a king, but he's putting his own tomb with the kings. And God says, because you did that, because you got too big for your britches, I'm going to take away from you the rulership of the kingdom, and I'm going to give it to someone else, specifically Jehoiakim. He says, when I take it from you, I'm going to take the key of the city of David, and I'm going to put it on Jehoiakim's shoulder. What he opens, no one will close what he closes, no one will open. This is the reference that Jesus is talking, that he's going back to, and he's saying, this is who I am. I'm the one who receives the authority from God, who has the right to rule. But that's not the only thing that he's pointing to, because in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, let me pull this up here. Jesus has the divine authority to judge. In Revelation 6, chapter t- uh, verse 10, the saints who have been killed cry out to God and say, how long, holy and true one, will you not judge those who dwell on the earth and avenge our blood? This is the only other place in John that this reference to Jesus being holy and true is used how long will it be before you bring recompense on those who killed our, us and shed our blood? And the answer that they receive is, wait patiently. A little bit longer until the full number of those who will be killed. and Then I will come and judge. And so Jesus establishes himself. He says, I am the Holy One. I am Yahweh. I am the Messiah. I am the one who holds all authority to this kingdom and to the heavenly kingdom and I am the one who has the right to judge all the works of man to say, you have passed, you have not passed. I am the one who holds that right. This is a comfort to the Philadelphians, especially going back to the fact that Jesus said, I am the true one. This comforts them because he's not capricious. He's trustworthy. He can be taken at his word. So Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign judge. Um, there's also an allusion here back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Again, John, when he's in the first four or five letters, he goes back to chapter 1 and the opening of the vision where Jesus pulls metaphors out of the original vision to say, this is who I am to the churches. Well, in verse 18 of chapter 1, Jesus says, I hold the keys of de- of, he- of Del." hell and of death, <laughs> not del and heth, there's someplace else, of hell and of death. Now, Jesus isn't saying here, I'm holding the keys of hell and of death, what he's saying is I'm holding the key of David, but he's tying together this same right of, of standing that he gave in, in chapter 1 of Revelation, here in chapter 3, to the Church of Philadelphia. So Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Jesus is the one who opens and no one closes. Closes and no one opens. In concluding this this first section, before we move on to the next one, it it is vitally important that we see this. Let me write here. Remember Philadelphia was shaken by earthquakes. We're gonna, we're gonna find out some more about displacement in a moment, but specifically when Philadelphia was rocked by this earthquake and everyone displaced was displaced, everyone had to move, everyone was pushed out. Jesus says, just like when you were displaced by them, the emperor came and brought you aid. I'm the one who has the right to come and bring you aid. I have the authority and the power and I am faithful to come and bring you aid. Number two, the faithful church in Philadelphia. Jesus says to the church, I know your deeds. Behold, I have set an open door before you that no one has the power to close. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my words. You have not denied my name. What's Jesus saying here? The church in Philadelphia was faithful. I know your deeds. He said this to all the churches. What is Philadelphia dealing with here? The one thing that we have to bear in mind is that the synagogue of Satan is the only thing that's talked about. And we already know that the synagogue of Satan were Jews who were worshiping in the synagogue, and they said those Christians are not Jews. They don't have a right to be exempt from emperor worship. And they don't have a right to worship here with us, as Jews. And what had actually happened to Philadelphia was the Jews had excommunicated the Christians from the synagogue. They said, you cannot be here. Go out, we're closing the doors. Leave here, we're barring access. You cannot come back in. Jesus says, I know that you have little strength. I know that you are weak. I know that you've been excommunicated. I know you've been pushed out. I know you've been displaced. And I know that you're suffering as a result of it. But in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of the trial that you find yourself in, despite the fact that you have little strength, you have kept my words. You have not denied my name. You have been faithful Follow me indeed, and you have been faithful to follow me in your spirit. Not bowing the knee, not capitulating to pressure. Because I know your deeds. You have little power. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You have been faithful despite legal setbacks that you have faced. Despite the physical setbacks that you have faced, you have remained faithful to me. And then he says, as a result of this, I want you to understand something. Even though you've lost strength, even though you've lost position, even though you've lost your health, your money, your legal protection, your relationships, You've lived each day to please your Lord and King. I have seen it. So Jesus gives to them a word of encouragement. He has said to them, you know, I'm not going to tease it out here, but he says to them, I know your works. And then he has three statements where he says, behold. And behold in Greek is, is akin to look. Look at what's going on here. Look and see this. It only says it once, I believe, in the NIV, but it actually happens three times. And it says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they are liars, I will give them to you so that they will bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient enduring, I will plant you like a pillar in the house of my God. So what's going on here? Jesus' word of encouragement, number one, has a promise of faithful keeping. Jesus says to them, because A, you kept my word, because B, you, kept my, uh, you did not deny my name, because C, you did this despite the fact that you were weak. I want to show you some things. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. Look at what I'm going to do here. He says, number one, look, despite the fact that you're weak, I've placed an open door in front of you. That no one has the power to close. He's just said, I know you're weak. I know the Jews have closed the synagogue door to you. They've said you cannot come in here. But look. I have put an open door right in front of you, and no one has the power to shut it. Number two, look, those guys that claim to be Jews, though they are not, very strong Greek here, but they are liars. Look at this. Those people who, quit, who closed you out, they are liars. Number three, look at what I'm going to do. I'm gonna make them come and bow down at your feet. There's the second part of that. I'm going to make them know that I have loved you. They've claimed to be my people. But I'm going to show them differently. This bowing down goes back to the Old Testament. It was a Jewish expectation out of Isaiah, out of Hosea, out of a number of the prophets that the people of the world, the Gentiles, would come before the Jews, bow down to the Jews, and acknowledge that they were God's people. But an ironic twist here, and following what Paul has told us in Galatians 6, that the church is the Israel of God. The very Jews who are expecting the world to come and bow down at their feet and say, God has loved you, those Jews are going to be brought before the church according to Jesus, right here in Revelation 3, to bow down at the church's feet and say, God has loved you. This is not an anti-Semitic statement. This is a salvation statement. This goes back to Romans, where Paul, going back to the Old Testament, says, but God has said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I have chosen the one on whom I place my favor, and that one is mine. What he says to the church in Philadelphia is, even though you're weak, even though you've been displaced, you've kept my word, and you are the one on which I put my favor. You are the one on whom my love rests. There's a second point here, though, They've been faithful to keep Jesus' words. Going back to Luke 14, 21, Jesus says, The one who keeps my commandments, that's the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will come and I will make my home with him. Jesus said in John 17, The world will know that the Father has loved you because you love one another. There's a testimony of God's love and favor on us that is seen in our obedience to the Father vis-a-vis the words of Christ. By following Christ's instructions, the world knows that God has loved us. Now, that may seem counterintuitive. That may not seem to line up with your, your current contemporary experience. But that is the divine economy in which God works. And we have the opportunity to be faithful, to trust that. Secondly, there is a promise of faithful, uh, is that second? No, it's not second. Yes, there is. There's a promise of faithful keeping. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, There's two questions that we have to ask here. One. What is the hour of testing? Two, what does it mean to be kept from the hour of testing? Those are really good questions. I'll let Brett answer those. No. Uh, <laughs> when Hannah asked me, that's essentially what I did. Um, uh, I'm not going to go into it. You can take me at my work here. You can check my work in my notes if you want. and we'll do an after hours at some point about this. But the hour of testing is the Great Tribulation. Very clear. Look again at Revelation 6.10. The hour of testing is not something that the Church of Philadelphia is going to go through on its own in a little thing. Not specific to the Church of Philadelphia. It's going to come, as it says here in verse 8, I think, on the whole world to test all those who live on the earth. You want to have fun? Trace that term, those who live on the earth, through revelation. What does it mean to be kept from that hour? Well, the Greek is not clear. The Greek is a little bit ambiguous here. The word ek, from where we get excise, can mean from. In a general English translation. Or it it can mean kept out of. It can mean kept in the midst of, or pulled, removed from. In this case, the, the Greek isn't clear. But I think the context is clear. Why want to think the context is clear. I'll give you just a couple reasons. Number one, In John 17, 15, what does Jesus pray for the disciples? I don't pray, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them and protect them from the enemy. This idea of keeping from being to guard as opposed to remove harkens back even to the edemic responsibility. Back in the garden, God told Adam, keep the garden. He didn't mean to remove it from the earth. He meant kept it, keep it safe, tend it, protect it, cultivate it. Number three, when we look again at Revelation 6.10, the answer that the Holy One gives to the people who have already been martyred, to say when are you going to bring revenge, the answer is, not until the full number of those who will be killed who will be killed, has been completed. Not until every last drop of martyr blood has been shed. Why? Because God knows who among us is going to die a martyr's death. It's already been marked out for us in this book. And when the last drop of martyr's blood has been shed, God's going to say the, it's time. I don't know what's gonna, when that's going to be. But God does. And the promise here is not that he's going to remove us from that danger or remove us from that suffering. It's that because the Philadelphian church has kept his word, has not denied his name, has kept his word to patiently endure, he is going to keep them. He's going to hold them in the palm of his hand. This even goes back to John 10 where Jesus says, all the Father has given to me are mine and none can take them from my hand because the Father is greater than I am and none can take them from his hand. Those are the hands that are keeping the Philadelphian church through the midst of this trial. And so this hour of testing, they will be kept through. I'm moving faster than my notes are. I apologize. And so he gives to them a word of encouragement which finishes with this thought. I am coming soon. This is the encouragement. Look at what I'm going to do. Look at what I've already done. I'm going to keep you through the suffering, and I'm coming soon. Let's talk about this soon for just a second. This idea of coming soon is constant throughout Revelation. Jesus says it in chapter 2. Jesus says it to the church here in Philadelphia in chapter 3. And then he says it in Revelation 22 three times. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. The church replies and says, yes, because he's coming soon, In verse 22 of chapter 22, it ends and says, "Behold, I'm coming soon." And then John ends up by saying, "Maranatha! Even so, Lord, come." This idea of coming soon can be demonstrated here as meaning to be a quickly occurring thing. This isn't an ambiguous kind of term. It's a little ambiguous. He's not saying in five minutes or in three seconds. But what he's saying is, it is imminent. And it's not imminent in the sense that one day it's going to happen. It's imminent in that you can say, as Jesus used this word in Matthew, to give you the reference here. um, What's the reference? Well, let's go to John first. John. In chapter 11, verse 30, Mary, after Lazarus dies, Martha comes to Mary and says, the teacher wants you, and quickly, Mary went to him. If you want to put a pin in this, the Greek word is takus. Think tacos. They go through you quickly. (laughs) That's why you should never speak extemporaneously. That's none of my notes. T-A-X-U-S, takus. Number two in Matthew, chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus, in talking to the people, says, but if your brother has something against you, quickly settle it while you're on the way. Now, let's, let, let's go ahead and see how many ways we can take this. When Jesus says, quickly settle this while you're on the way, does he mean, as you're walking down the road, go ahead and figure, you know, someday, I'll take care of figuring this out and making this right with you. Quickly, while you're on the way, work it out. Be reconciled, otherwise he's going to hand you over to the judge, the judge is going to hand you over to the officer, you will be thrown into prison, and you will not be let out until you've paid every last cent. So quickly, work it out. He says to the church in Philadelphia, I am coming quickly. This is the encouragement. So he says to them, I am coming quickly. Hold on so that no one may take your crown. And to the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the house of my God. Hold on just a little bit longer. If the word to the church in Sardis is wake up, then the word to Philadelphia is hold on hold on, I know your grip is slipping. I know you're scared. I know you don't think it can work out. You cannot see how it's going to work. But hold on, I'm coming to you. You're holding on to the edge of that cliff. You feel the strain, the perspiration is running off your fingers. You know it's slipping. And the voice from above says, hold on, not because it's far off, but because your rescuer is running and reaching down to grab you. And in fact, according to the words of Jesus, is holding on to your arms as he says, quickly, I'm coming. This is what he tells Philadelphia. There's a word of warning here, and I'll I'll gloss over it very quickly. Hold on so that no one may take your crown. Shibna lost his crown. King Saul lost his crown. Esau forfeit his birthright. It is possible, brother and sister, that we may get to the end and find that we have forfeit a crown. And my plea to you this morning is hear the words of our Lord. Hear his Holy Spirit. Hold on. That you not forfeit your crown. He says to them, I will make them a pillar. This is making an allusion back to Isaiah 22, where he's already talked about Jehoiakim receiving the key. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. He then says, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. Everything's going to be hung on him. All the articles of the house, the bowls, the harps, and he goes through all these ridiculous things that you would never hang on a peg. I will drive him in securely. Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God. But in verse 25 of Isaiah 22, it says this, but in that day, I will shear off that peg. Judah was lost. Judah went into captivity. That peg was shorn off. And Jesus says, not So, you. I will plant you like a pillar in the house of my God. Never will you leave it. Yes, you've been rocked by earthquakes. Yes, you've been totally displaced from the city because of that earthquake. But here, Philadelphia, is what you know. And Bay Ridge, I'll tell you because you don't know The temple in Philadelphia was built to be earthquake-proof. When they laid the foundation for the temple, they laid it on a layer of charcoal covered by a layer of felt. They then laid the foundation with interlocking mechanisms so that once the foundation was laid, it was a complete, essentially, tabletop that floated on the surface of the ground. So that when the earthquake came, the most secure place in the city of Philadelphia was the temple. The earthquake would come, and it would go like this. Ride it out. Ride it out, baby. Jesus says, I'm going to set you in my temple. I'm going to set you up as a pillar in my temple, and you will never leave it. And he says to them, and I will write on you the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven, and I will write on you my new name. These new names. This is not a Trinitarian construction here. This is eternal security language. This is eternal assurance language. Jesus is saying, I'm going to write in you my God's name, the one who runs the city. I'm going to write in you the city's name so that everyone knows where you belong, the temple's name, so that everyone knows where you belong. And I'm going to write in you my name because that's the key to get in. You're not going to lose this. You're not going to be displaced. Yes, the Jews closed the doors and said, you cannot come in, but I have opened the doors. Yes, the earthquake came and drove you out of the city, but I have set you like a pillar in the temple, and you will never leave it. There were two statues in the city of Philadelphia. One of Tiberius, that was set up in gratitude to his kindness to them after the earthquake. The second was the retired high priest. After the high priest of the temple in Philadelphia, Pagan, but we're using the, the imagery from the city. After this pagan high priest retired from his duty, in honor of his faithfulness to the priesthood and to their false god, a temple, a, a statue was erected to this priest. And on this priest was written his name and the name of the God that he served. Jesus says, You see that over there? You see those statues? The one to the rescuer, the one to who is faithful, follow his God. That's you. That's what I'm going to do. So verse 13 says, "He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And so the question for us is, what is the tr- what is the Spirit saying? Ridge. This is my desire this morning, brothers. My desire is that your mind would be overwhelmed, and your heart thrilled with the sovereign, faithful power of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words: keep, give, hold, open. Placed, closed. Each one of those verbs is done by a hand. Every single one of the verbs that Jesus speaks to this church is one that is done with the hand. And the only one that they're told to do is hold on. Hold on, therefore, to what you have. That no one may take your crown. I want to ask first to anyone who is not a believer here this morning: the question is simply this. Have you laid hold of Jesus? Have you set up your throne like Shibna? Like King Saul? Like the Jews, have you rejected Jesus? Jesus Christ, the Messiah is the one who holds the key to eternal life. And it is not too late to embrace him. My call to you, and I believe the call from Scripture this morning, would be reach out and lay hold of Christ who is reaching out to you while there is still time. To the believer who is weak, weary, father, mother, mother, trying to raise your children in the fear and admission of God Are you tired? Are you weak? Are you confounded by the responsibilities? Do you know how to even begin? To you know how to continue in the face of kids who don't want to do it? A schedule that seems completely closed to the possibility? Husband or wife? Are you struggling? love and forgive your spouse the way that Christ has loved and given you? Christian in the workplace, Christian in school, are you being ridiculed and rejected because of your faith, because you're following your king? Jesus says, I know. I see it. I know hold on, I'm coming quickly, and I'm bringing my reward with me to you. Hold on. Finally, to anyone who may be despondent, anyone who's reached a point of despair, anyone who feels the sweat on their fingertips and knows their fingers are about to let go, and maybe it would be easier to just let go and fall. Anyone who is afraid because they don't have the answer to the questions from society around us. Anyone who's afraid because maybe we can't know, maybe agnosticism is the only rational position to take. If that's where you are. I believe scripture would tell you this. Jesus is holding on to you. Jesus is holding you right now. Tenderly and gently. And I would say to you, he is coming soon. Hold on. Jesus Christ, we see represented in this table, came to earth to receive the punishment for your sin. He was killed on the cross where you deserve to be killed so that you might receive forgiveness of your sins. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, when he says, hold on, when he says, I am holding you, the touchstone that we have, know that his words are true. Back to his If Jesus Christ died and did not rise again, leave here, right now. But if Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, if you are in despair, if you feel it can't possibly be true, if you can't go another day with this facade of Christianity, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, trust me. Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. After giving thanks, he broke the bread, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and said, This cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, Claim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, I stand here grateful that your Son came and paid the price for my sins. Father, it is only because of his standing before you that I can stand here today. Father, it is also because of his standing before you that I can know that my sins have been forgiven, that I have been washed as white as snow, that all of my transgressions have been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. And I can know, Father, that regardless of what comes to me today or tomorrow, your sovereign right hand holds me safely and will see me safely home. Because, Jesus, you came and died and rose from the dead, I have no doubt you will come and call me forth from death and see me into your kingdom. Father, I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would strengthen any hands that are weak, that you would strengthen any souls that are failing, that you would speak to us, Father, your words of encouragement and cause us to persevere in the name of your Son. Amen. We're going to pass out the elements here. This is, as we say here often, the Lord's table, not the table of Bay Ridge. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I welcome you to come and take this table. If you're not, you say, you know, this Jesus thing, I'm not really sure about it. This whole death thing, and how can someone else's death do anything about my sins? If that's where you are, I would ask you to, instead of taking this, Come and see me. Come and see Brad. Come and see one of our elders and ask us those questions. The rest of you, we'll take this in a moment together. Jesus, your body was broken. And you told us that because you suffered, we can expect that we will suffer also. Lord, you know our frame. You know our weaknesses. You're acquainted with our suffering and our grief. You have been our high priest who knows the things that we suffer and are tempted with and advocates before God Almighty on our behalf. Father, I thank you that you have loved us with a love that did not spare your Son. Lord, I ask that as we partake of your body this morning, you would renew in us a strength, a profundity of understanding because you suffered as your body was broken, you have the power to heal. You have the power to restore. I ask, Father, that you would comfort we who are suffering and struggling as we walk through these things with the knowledge and the grace of the broken body of your son take me Jesus, by your blood, our sins have been forgiven. You were faithful unto death. You told the church in Philadelphia. You commended them for holding on. You encouraged them that you were coming soon. And you instructed them to hold on all the tighter. Father, faithfulness is your calling card. And faithfulness is what you are working in us. And yet, Father, your Son's blood which was poured out and your wrath which was drunk down to the dregs by Christ was not faithfulness, but was perfection on our behalf. And it's because of his perfection, Lord, that you no longer require of us that same perfection, but you call us to
0: faithfulness
1: because of the perfection of Lord, I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would reveal to us where in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives we are not being faithful, where we are not eschewing sin, that we might hold tightly to your word, knowing that it is because your blood was shed that you look at us in our weakness, sin and say, by the blood of Christ, you have been forgiven and redeemed. Go and sin no more. Take and drink the forgiveness of Christ. Father, may you seal us by your word, by the reception of this good grace that comes to us through the blood and body of Christ. May you confirm to us your words and seal us for your work, that we might please you in all things. Jesus' name. Would you stand for a word of benediction? Jesus loves you, brothers and sisters. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus is coming soon. May you hold on to what you have. May no one take your crown. May Jesus make you a pillar in the temple of his God, and may you never leave it. May he write on you the name of his God, and the name of the city of his God, and may he write on you his own new name. Even so, Lord, come. Amen.